0: Hello, welcome. I'm Kate McKay, Associate Film Curator here at the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive. And before we proceed, I'd like to say a big thank you to our generous film series sponsors, Robert Riccardi and SB Master, for their support of It's Only Rock and Roll, our summer long celebration of the intersection of rock and roll and cinema. So thank you very much. This series runs through August 31st, both inside our beautiful Barbro Osher Theater and on our outdoor screen, which is really super fun and exciting. We we opened the series with a screening of Stop Making Sense on the outdoor screen, which literally had people dancing in the street, which is the, about the best you can hope for. Um, this series was inspired by David E. James' fascinating book, Rock and Film Cinemas Dance with Popular Music. Here's an example of it, the book. Um, and we're delighted to have Professor James here with us today to speak to speak about the book and to speak about his research and to show us some clips. Um, just this book is available in our bookstore, so and it is I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, but to in, by way of introduction, David E. James is on the faculty of the School of Cinematic Arts at the University of Southern California and has held academic positions at the University of California Occidental College, New York University, Korea University, Shanghai University of Science and Technology, the Beijing Film Academy, the National Taiwan University, and Vietnam Na- National Ye- Vietnam National University, Hanoi. He's won numerous awards and fellowships, and I won't list them because he asked me to keep the introduction short. Um, But his teaching and research interests currently focus on avant-garde cinema, culture in Los Angeles, East Asian cinema, film and music, and working class culture. And he's written numerous books and articles, of which I'll name just a few, uh, there's the invaluable Allegories of Cinema, American Film in the 60s, To Free the Cinema, Jonas Mekis and the New York Underground, Power Misses, Essays Across Unpopular Culture, and Alternative Projections, Experimental Film in Los Angeles, 1945 to 1980. He's also written books on Stan Brackage and Ken Jacobs. But without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor David E. James. <clears throat>
1: Thank you, Kate, for that marvellously generous introduction. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for coming inside on such a beautiful day. Uh, It's really wonderful outside, and so I'm honoured that you would uh, come in out of the sun. The book, uh, Kate mentioned, Rock and Film, is about the relations between cinema and popular music from the mid-50s to the mid-70s. It argues that in rock and roll's classic era... Popular music was fundamentally a biracial development, and that the music and films about it anticipated, reflected, and to some degree participated in the utopian cultural developments of the time, especially the civil rights movement and the various youth insurgencies. Some of these political issues will appear in this talk, but since we're in this uh, magnificent palace of cinema, such a wonderful theatre, this afternoon, I will be primarily concerned with matters of film historiography. The talk is about 50 minutes long and will be illustrated with some 20 minutes of uh, film clips, which I am chagrined to say you will probably enjoy much more than my arguments. The first part of the talk reconstructs the theory of the classic Hollywood musical so as to provide my methodological principles. Then we turn to the history of, and to specific films. Rock and roll and films about it have been synergistically interdependent since they emerged simultaneously in the mid-1950s in the United States. The first film to feature the new music was Blackboard Jungle, released in March 1955, with Bill Haley's record Rock Around the Clock playing over the opening credits. Rather than dramatizing music's romantic pleasures, Blackboard Jungle linked rock and roll to juvenile delinquency. And together, the music and the delinquents made the film enormously scandalous and enormously successful. And reciprocally, the film made the record an international hit, with estimated sales eventually of over 3 million. Haley's popularity closely followed Elvis's emergence in 1954. And with the first wave of rock and roll, semi amateur working class musicians especially African-American working-class musicians, increasingly displaced Tin Pan Alley professionals as the originators of a new common culture. Subsequently, film not only represented rock and roll, it became one of the most important mediums in which the music and its attendant cultural manifestations were produced. Like records, radio, television, cinema became a principal means of rock and roll production, both of the music itself and the entire social gestalt it sustained. The emergence of rock and roll then ended the hegemony of the great American songbook over popular U.S. music, and with that, the classic musical's golden age ended. After Elvis appeared, there were some stellar traditional musicals, including High Society and Silk Stockings in the mid-50s, and others were produced in the next decade. West Side Story, for example, or My Fair Lady, both of which were symptomatically concerned with working-class delinquents. But by the mid-50s, the Hollywood musical had essentially run its course. So that when its foremost historian, Rick Altman, asked, when is a musical not a musical, he immediately answered his question with, when it has Elvis Presley in it. Though at least partly facetious, his axiom marks the break between the classic musical film and films about rock and roll. The few previous books on this topic are arranged either alphabetically or chronologically, and both have their uses, but neither allows the genre a coherently structured and determinate evolution, that is, a history. Film scholars have written histories of the classic musical, schematizing the developments of structural motifs, conventions, subgenres, and so on, together with their relationship to changes in the media industries generally and the underlying social environment. But typically, when the histories of the classic musical reach the mid 50s, they abrupt at the impossibility Altman noted. While recognizing and indeed emphasizing the musical, cinematic, and social ruptures of the mid-1950s, my book, Rock and Film, makes two main historiographical propositions. First, that films about rock and roll do have a structured and coherent evolution, that is, a history... And second, that this history revolves around the two social implications of music generally that had previously informed the structure and themes of the classic musical, ideas of romance and ideas of community. That is, though the rock and roll film ended the classical musical, it also renewed it, reconstructing it for the popular music of a new era. The most important of, and fundamental, of the classical musical structural motifs that the rock and roll film assimilated is the interplay between narrative and spectacle. That is, between the fictional plot and the quasi documentary song and dance performances that public, uh, periodically interrupt it, the story and the music dance numbers it includes. These two elements represent the music in two complementary ways. The audiovisual spectacle of performance shows what the music looks like and sounds like, what the musicians look like, while the narrative places them in a social and historical context. The narrative reveals what kind of people are associated with the music, how they use it, and the significance it has for them and for the wider public while the narrative dramatizes an argument about how the music is used and what it means. So we can say that rock and roll musicals theorize rock and roll. They present a theory of what rock and roll implies, signifies, means. So that's motif number one. Two of the other principal motifs of the classic musical that scholarship has developed respectively mobilise the two implications of music that I mentioned, romance and community. The first of these are the dual focus narrative, and the second the desire of commodity musical films industrially produced to valorize invested capital to present themselves as folk art. I'll quickly sketch these arguments then indicate how they were reconstructed in films about the rock and about rock and roll. Even though they usually include a heterosexual romance the narratives of Hollywood films of the classic period typically focus on one male protagonist. Following his setbacks and successes to a resolution that coincides with, the, coincides with the closure of the other narrative elements. In contrast, Rick Altman again argued that the musical typically contains two paired protagonists, a boy and a girl, representing antithetical values. The narrative alternates between these two to create a dual focus. You see a bit of his story, you see a bit of her story, you see a bit of his story, a bit of her story. And then uh, uh, their relationship is successfully resolved in the marriage of the pair and of the values they each separately represent. Busby Berkeley's mid-1930s backstage musicals, for example typically contain a leading boy and girl performing in a Broadway show. In the process, they become romantically involved so that their pledge of love in the show's concluding songs also signifies the same commitment to the characters' offstage lives. Both narrative lines are resolved simultaneously, the one within the theatrical musical show and the one in the film about the staging of it. A film of this kind about a theatrical show, a show musical, inevitably generates patterns of similarity and difference between the film itself and the show depicted in it. Especially after the late 1940s, the shows represented in musical films tended to be based not on Broadway theatre, but on earlier American agricultural communities. They often portrayed the singers and dancers as amateurs rather than professionals, and they emphasized um, spontaneity and popular performance. Oklahoma, uh, for example, is exemplary. These new musicals form a subgenre distinct from the 1930s backstage show musical called the Folk Musical, But again, commercial films about putatively amateur music generates reflexive patterns concerning the commercial function of the film itself and the non-commercial function of the show it depicts. These intertextual references between the show and the film about it produced what Jane Foyer, another prominent historian of the classic musical, characterized as self-reflexive musicals. Jane Foyer argued that in the subgenre of folk musicals that involve kids or people getting together and putting on a show, amateurs in high school or in Oklahoma, the represented amateur show functions ideologically to represent, to repress the audience's self consciousness of the commodity nature of the film about its show and of the alienated social relations that a capitalist film sustains. Using a then-contemporary distinction between folk art and mass art, she argued that the depiction of a musical show as folk art conceals its nature as capitalist mass art. Now, quote, The Hollywood musical becomes a mass art which aspires to the condition of folk art produced and consumed by the same integrated community. And that... Represented folk community, she argues, reeks with nostalgia for America's mythical communal past, even when the musical film itself exemplifies the new alienated mass art. We might note at the outset that issues around the relationship between unalienated folk art And alienated capitalist culture are especially contentious in rock and roll, which involves extensive popular amateur practice and often has strong ideological investments in being understood as folk culture, but is also inseparable from industrial production and its attendant commodity uh, relations. Okay, so that's the theoretical intro. And so now we're going to turn to actual rock and roll films, to this history of rock and roll films showing the evolution of these conventions to demonstrate the the coherent evolution of these three motifs, the relationship between musical spectacle and the narrative in which it exists, the dual-focused narrative involving a relationship between a boy and a girl, and the central role where you get the role of romance and then the tensions, indeed contradictions, in capitalist films but about what aspires to be, in some sense, community or folk music, those three motifs. Okay. The first wave of films about rock and roll was inaug- inaugurated in March 1956 with Rock Around the Clock, again featuring Bill Haley and his scandalous song, known as... Jukebox musicals, these low-budget exploitation quickies, were often based on Alan Freed's radio and theatre shows, and in them there was no question at all about unalienated folk music. The films unapologetically envisaged the essential form of rock and roll to be not live performance, but commodity records. And these records sustained the filmic spectacle of performers, most of them black, sinking lip-syncing to their current hits these narratives place the performances in a limited dramatic context that nevertheless did sometimes mobilize an attenuated form of the dual focus for example one of the jukebox musicals Joe Gunny, Joe, go johnny go of 1959 concerned a boy singer and a girl singer who becomes she becomes his fans and eventually ab- abandons her own career to marry him so there are elements of that dual focus. But these jukebox musicals didn't disguise rock and roll's comm- uh, commercial production by proposing it as folk music. Rather, these narratives emphasized all the components of uh, of its industrial production, and they almost all culminated in a televised grand finale in which the singers lip-synced to their hit records and where the rock and roll performances were positioned as a subsector of broadcast television. This created a media hierarchy dominated by Hollywood. Rock and roll was contained in television and television was contained in cinema. In place of any rock and roll folk community, The jukebox musicals were typically concerned with a skein of interconnected social issues around juvenile delinquency that dominated popular uh, discussions of rock and roll, especially in the, uh, the white public. These uh, issues were variously concerned with working class hoodlums, with promiscuous teenage sex, and especially with fear of African Americans and race mixing. Most crucially, the fear of a black boy with a white girl. No less an expert on popular music than Frank Sinatra made the conjunction between musical delinquency and social delinquency explicit. Rock and roll, Sinatra wrote, is sung, played, and written, by, for the most part, by cretinous goons. <laughs> and by means of its almost imbecilic reiteration of sly, lewd, in fact, dirty lyrics, it manages to be the martial music, the fighting music, of every sideburn delinquent on the face of the earth. Blackboard Jungle had exploited precisely these associations between rock and roll and teenage hoods. But the jukebox musicals that followed it typically began with a Sinatra-like assertion by a newspaper editor or by some kind of civic leader, but only to take it as a point of departure for narratives that disproved it While the spectacles presented some of the best, even dangerously incendiary performances like Little Richard and Chuck Berry, the narratives eventually exculpated and justified rock and roll by demonstrating that it was only innocuous teenage fun like any other form of media. Okay, now I'm going to show you two clips of the same song, both rock around the clock. The first clip is from Blackboard Jungle and it exploits the connections between Haley's song and Juvenile Delinquency the second is from the conclusion to Rock Around the Clock which was the first Jukebox musical named after Bill Haley's song and the second clip occurs in the film's televised finale in a Hollywood theatre just after the dual focus has been completed by an announcement of a marriage between the producer Who discovered rock and roll and a girl dancer. You'll see that the working class juveniles have been transformed into middle class adult nightclubbers, delinquency has been sanitized and assimilated to the culture to the culture industry. Okay, the first clip please, if you could.
2: Next club we'll pull off and start rocking round, rockin' chasing the yeah, water block, aloud, rocking, yeah, rocking, rocking, rock, rock, rock
1: In less than a year, Hollywood had shifted the uh, meaning of rock and roll from social menace to harmless family entertainment involving this uh, um, idyllic uh, uh, utopian interracial community. The sanitization of rock and roll and its easy incorporation into capitalist culture continued through the 1950s and at least in Hollywood films through the 1960s. The most crucial films were Elvis's, whose films, Hal Wallace is supposed to have said, were the only sure thing in Hollywood. In his early music, Elvis combined the white assimilation of black music together with the secularization of his own gospel music heritage, parallel to the achievements of Little Richard and Ray Charles, and so he transformed U.S. popular culture. But in his post-army films of the 1960s, his managers conspired with studio producers to evacuate his social and musical complexity in the most egregious destruction of rock and roll's rebellious energy. But three of the four films he made in Hollywood before going to the army, Loving You, Jailhouse Rock, and King Creole mobilized much of rock and roll's racial complexity and unruly utopian insurgency. All three featured him as the only performer and so replaced the multi-artist format of the jukebox musicals with a musical version of the biopic what I call the rise to stardom motif that had been a, a staple of Hollywood films about aspiring actors since the 1920s. A Star is Born with Lady Gaga is a recent version of this generic staple. The best of these three films and Elvis's personal favorite was King Creole. Cast him, casting him... Did somebody say yes? <laughs> okay. <laughs> The best of them, and Elvis' personal favorite, was King Creole. Casting him in the mold of 50s delinquent teenagers, especially his own idols, James Dean and Marlon Brando, it has him expelled from high school for kissing a gangster's mall. He's drawn into a gang of hoodlums in New Orleans. He accidentally becomes complicit in the nearly fatal mugging of his own father. And uh, in the reversal that introduces the second act of the movie, he antagonizes the boss gangster by greeting the gangster's mall. When she explains that she once heard him sing, the suspicious gangster forces him to prove her claim, which he does so by lip-syncing to his recording of Lieber and Stoller's classic adaptation uh, of uh, Wooly Dixon's Hoochie Coochie Man. And now we're going to play this uh, extended scene and uh, please uh, try to be aware of both the structure of the way in which the musical is photographed but how the musical performance is linked in with the social people who are observing the musical performance. So this is from King Creole.
3: Why does a busboy look at you like that? A busboy. Where did you meet him?
2: Maxie, you're hurting me. I don't know what you're talking about.
3: You know the kid. Don't lie to me. I'll break every finger you got.
2: Maxie, stop it, please. I heard him sing a song, that's all.
3: Oh. You do know him?
2: He sang here once for your big-shot friends. Told him he had a nice voice.
3: That was all, huh? That's all. Hey, you, kid. Come here. Yeah, you, bus boy. Come on over here. Lady tells me you sing, is that right? Well, I, uh, I better be right, because if it ain't, then the lady is lying. Okay, I'll sing. So what? Nothing. Just want to make sure she was telling the truth, that's all. Hey, Jimmy. Just a minute. I want to make sure you're telling the truth, too. I'd like to hear you. Go on up there and sing a song for me. Now? Yeah, now. Right now. And you better be a singer. and hey, gentlemen, we, uh, we have a little surprise for you. There's a great new singer here tonight, the busboy. <laughs> no, 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 on the level. A very good friend of Mr. Fields says this guy can really go. So let's all get together and give a real good listen to... What's your name, kid? Caruso!
0: <laughs> Caruso, the bus boy. Come on! Let's-
1: trouble you came to the right place if you're looking for trouble just look right in
2: my face i was born standing up and talking back my
4: daddy was a green eye hey, hey,
2: my little name Hold oh, do you mess around with me.
1: I never looked for trouble, but I never ran.
3: I don't take no orders, no kind of man. I'm only made out, flesh, blood, and bone.
2: But if you're gonna start a rumble, don't you try it all alone. Because I'm evil.
4: Take oh, my little name, Willy. Well, I'm evil, so don't you mess around with me. I'm evil. me, I'm evil, I'm evil, 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 evil. Oh, don't I don't matter.
3: singer kid i just got a dirty mind that's all sorry kid
5: yeah
1: Isn't that fabulous? the scene is consummate elvis is gloriously badass black music and black dance are pivotal and black musicians are present for the only instance in all elvis's 31 features And the spectacle is integrated perfectly into the narrative. Those eyeline looks between the uh, the gangster and Elvis are just spot on. The spectacle is perfectly integrated into the narrative, clarifying its themes and propelling the plot forward. A perfect illustration of the possibilities of the integrated musical and of classic Hollywood film language, film composition. The jukebox musicals and the rise to stardom structure into which Elvis transformed them migrated to England as immediately as did the music itself. And just six months after Elvis's first film, Love Me Tender, in November 1956, for example, the Tommy Steele story, a biopic about the first UK Elvis imitator, was released. The UK jukebox musicals were generally superior to all but Elvis' films of the 1950s and more candidly confronted issues of teenage delinquency and alienation. The best of the series, however, revived the jukebox musicals' uh, strategy of demonstrating that rock and roll was socially benign. Richard Lester's It's Trad Dad followed U.S. precedents in beginning with a small-town mayor attacking the teenager's music. This prompts a boy and a girl singer to prove the music's innocuity by persuading musicians to perform in a televised free concert in the town square. The film fully dramatizes the industrial production of records and all the commercial aspects of rock and roll, but the finale presents an ostensibly live performance that emphasizes the music's commutarian folk potential. As the narrative brings the male and female ingenues together, it includes their romance within a larger celebration of an urban community in which young and old, musicians and people, television cameramen, and eventually even the mayor and the police all spontaneously dance and sing together in an open-air carnival. The film's utopianism is, of course, deeply ideological, and like the classic musical in Foyer's analysis, its depiction of a social event where music appears to transcend commodity relations conceals, covers over, the production of such relations in and by the film itself. In his next film, A Hard Day's Night, Richard Lester made even more crucial innovations that further displayed his skill in visualizing rock and roll spectacle as emancipatory popular culture and his subordination of narrative momentum to spectacular performance. Two issues, among many, that were primarily important in the Beatles' music that the film depicts. These were their modifications of the mode of musical production, and its performance by a group rather than by an individual. In their earlier covers of U.S. rock and roll, the Beatles followed artists like Elvis who performed material written by others, but they quickly switched to the precedent of U.S. rock and roll musicians like Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly Holly, by writing their own. This marked them as the first major rock and roll artists to be essentially autonomous as a group, though within that, integrally dependent on each other, a transformation in the social relations of the mode of musical production and in its social implications. Eventually, their collectivity was to sustain the popular belief in their music's personal and even generational expressivity, that transcended its commercial production and dissemination. As the Beatles' success was followed by that of the Rolling Stones, the Birds, and especially San Francisco groups like the Grateful Dead, such communal, quasi-folk countercultural production became the norm. In this respect, the Beatles' significance for 60s utopianism and the ideal of folk authenticity can hardly be overemphasized. Here, for example, is Abby Hoffman. Well, the Beatles are a new family group. They are organized around the way they create. They are communal art. They are brothers, and along with their wives and girlfriends, form a family unit that is horizontal rather than vertical, that extends across a peer group rather than descending vertically, like parents, children, grandchildren. If you want to understand our culture, you could start by comparing The Beatles with Frank Sinatra. The Beatles' innovations in the mode of musical production were manifested in The Hard Day's Night's uh, soundtrack album, their first to be composed entirely of original songs, and the film itself correspondingly generated new possibilities for cinematic narrative that became seminal for the rock and roll film. Any Beatles films had to accommodate four leading but ostensibly equal characters, all playing themselves as Beatles rather than assuming dramatic persona, as had Elvis. The initial conception of A Hard Day's Night had included four separate episodes distinguishing their individual personalities. But though an afternoon erotic affair involving Paul was shot, it was cut, and of them, of these four individual episodes, only Ringo's Lonely Derive, in which he hooks up not with a girl, but with a truant schoolboy, remains. Now, cinema previously had been able to find seven brides for seven brothers, but the Beatles' identity and autonomy as a group preempted the separate romantic episodes that could have generated four individual dual focus narratives. Instead, the narrative largely infantilizes them and de-eroticizes them, dramatizing them as errant English schoolboys controlled in an exclusively homosocial world by a male mum and dad, who try to make them stay in at night and do their homework of answering fan letters. Testosterone-driven delinquency is displaced onto grandpa, the only real male teenager in the narrative. The other fundamental plot motif is the horde of menadic girl fans, a group of girls in mad pursuit of the Beatles as a group of boys. As it extends the narrative, the girls' pursuits and the boys' avoidance of them restages the dual focus as a romance not between individuals but between two collectivities, the fans and the musicians. And as in the classic musical, the dual focus is resolved in the final performance where a hyperbolically intense and sexualized oral and visual consummation is achieved. And in doing so, it transforms the narrative fiction into documentary spectacle. Playing themselves, the Beatles and their female fans realize the dual focus as a social event, joining them all in an ecstatic commonality. Now I'm going to screen the uh, last uh, uh, few minutes or so of A Hard Day's Night and try to be aware of the camera movements and especially of the cuts between sh- one shot and another. <laughs>
4: they would Still
1: Narratively, it's the same situation as the one where we saw the uh, second version of uh, "Rock Around the Clock." It's a televised musical performance, but from a filmic point of view, from the way the audiovisual is structured, it's uh, totally, totally different. This brilliant audiovisual composition was created by the editor John Jimpson from footage shot by the DP Gilbert Taylor. Taylor had use of six cameras, three on the stage and three in the audience, shooting from a variety of positions along all three spatial axes, and so was able to foreground diagonals in all three dimensions. He mixed lenses of many different focal lengths from extreme close-up on John Lennon's lips to wide shots of both the stage and the audience, all elaborated with combinations of backlighting and high-key lighting and zooms and moving camera shots. Editor Jimson beautifully developed Taylor's footage and filmically positioned the band in a dynamic interaction between with the fans, all within the apparatus of industrial musical production and television uh, and broadcasting. Both aspects rec- recall rock around the clock, though now they are much, much more sophisticated. The consummation of the film's overall reconstruction of the dual-focus narrative as a social development is still inhibited by the proscenium arch that separates uh, the uh, singers from the performers and uh, uh, um, the, the division of labor in that conjunction that is marked. But nevertheless, Lester's conclusion provided a model... That subsequent films used to project the rock and roll concert and then the rock and roll festival as non alienated, biracial, countercultural folk communities uniting musicians and fans in reciprocal adoration. Released in London in July 1964, A Hard Day's Night, to all intents and purposes, ended the jukebox musicals and pivotally reconfigured the rock and roll film. Six weeks earlier, Elvis's uh, best post-army feature, Viva Las Vegas, which of all his films most closely resembles the classic folk musical, uh, opened in New York, while a few months later, a documentary film called The Tammy Show opened in Los Angeles. The Tammy show resembled the dukebox musicals based on Fried's theater shows, and it too had vestiges of the new form of the dual focus introduced in A Hard Day's Night. The musicians and the fans converge separately on the auditorium, where though still physically separated by the stage, they are rapturously united in the music. The film also brought together the white British invasion bands with their black US rhythm and blues models. It opened with Chuck Berry jamming on his hits with Jerry and the Pacemakers and ended with sets by James Brown and the Rolling Stones who are finally joined on stage by all the musicians all dancing together as in trad jazz. But unlike tra- It's Trad and unlike A Hard Day's Night and the music was not lip-synced to records, but performed live. So even though the concert it depicted was organized specifically for the film, The Tammy Show was entirely documentary, and in this it prefigured the cinema verite concert documentaries of the mid-1960s, which replaced the jukebox musicals as the dominant form of rock and roll film. Rock and roll's association with delinquency were transformed at the beginning of the 1960s when commercial rock and roll lost its cultural authority in both the US and the UK to the revival of folk music. This lasted until the reciprocal influence of the Beatles and Bob Dylan shaped the new music. Now, usually folk rock or rock rather than rock and roll... First, uh, the British invasion bands, and then the San Francisco uh, Renaissance that matured and became the primary cultural component of the late 60s countercultures. In this 60s music, the negative social implications of 50s rock and roll were positively transvalued. African Americans were idealized. Sexual promiscuity became regenerative free love. Um, delinquency became principled resistance to the uh, U.S. imperialism and capitalist alienation, and drugs became the route to higher truths. Hollywood was not able to assimilate uh, either the new music or its social implications, and their cinematic form became instead direct cinema or cinema verite documentaries independently produced totally outside the studios. Taking advantage of recent technological developments, direct cinema privileged an observational, uncontrolled objectivity that took the form of minimally edited, continuous, long takes. And instead of sanitizing rock and roll as an inoffensive and manageable subordinate component of the culture industry... Cinema Verite direct cinema documentaries increasingly allied themselves with the counterculture's commitment to emancipatory social reform and hence with the libertary elements of rock and roll. Three of these direct cinema documentaries were especially important. Don't Look Back, about Bob Dylan's first English tour, Monterey Pop, about the first of the rock festivals, and Woodstock. In these, the conventions of the classic musical that had continued vestigially in 50s rock and roll films were fundamentally reconstructed and reaffirmed. Since the films were documentary throughout, the formal and diegetic divisions between uh, the quasi-documentary spectacle of musical performance and the fictional narrative, the distinction between those was eroded, and the narrative did not break for the spectacle of performance, but continued through it. This uh, diegetic continuity contributed to the forceful revival of the dual focus, but in the new form created by Lester. The structuring erotic relationships between the ingenues of the classic and jukebox musical was reconstructed as an extensive social relationship between the musicians and the audience in the unalienated uh, community of the counterculture. So taken as a sequence, direct dark, dark cinema documentaries progressively develop alternating narrative lines that bring the musicians and the fans to the concert separately and then bond them together in a reciprocal, all-pervasive, cultural, affirmative love that con- cancels the difference between them. In the first, Don't Look Back, the audience is hardly seen and off-stage activity is restricted to Dylan and his entourage. In the second, Monterey Pop, montages gingerly bring the fans and the performers together, and in the performance scenes, shot, counter-shot figures put them in dynamic interaction, both structures, of course, undermining direct cinema's axiomatic long takes. And in Woodstock... The unfolding and eventually consummated egalitarian union of musicians and fans is thematically central and again cemented in dense non-verite montages. The consummation of the dual focus in the love shared between the performer and audience is first announced in Monterey Pop, where it is dramatically significant since it is staged as a relationship between a black musician and his white fans. In Monterey Pop, Otis Redding sings two songs, the upbeat Shake and a dramatically agonized I've been loving you too long. In both, the cinematography and editing are absolutely different from both the classic film language of *King Creole* and Lester's dynamic, dense montages. The first song is co- mostly covered in a single long take from center front, showing Otis performing before an abstract liquid uh, light, uh, light show. Liquid Projection Light Show. And the second uh, shot for the next song is another long take directly from the stage rear, uh, from the stage rear directly into the lights. And though both shots are visually very different, they are both classic long takes whose great beauty reflects the cameraman, D. Pennebaker himself, his skilled response to the performance in front of him. But between these two songs... um, uh, Otis Redding makes a brief remark and unlike in classic documentary editing or construction this brief shot is integrated inserted into the film between these two long takes Um, and in this uh, brief interpolated shot the audience and the singer are held together in the same frame for a few seconds as Otis Redding uh, declares uh, their commonality so now we're going to show this clip as two long takes of two different songs, and observe how fantastic uh, Lester uh, Pennybacker composes these on spot uh, with his single camera. And then between them, the editor has inserted a brief shot, which theorizes what well, the importance of this event. <laughs>
2: I want y'all to say it one more time, everybody get together, shake, everybody say it, shake, lift it loud, shake, under in the morning, shake, straight in the ring, let shake, Thank you. This is the love crowd, right? We all love each other, don't we? Am I right? Yeah. Let me hear you say yeah, man. Yeah. I've been loving you Too long to stop now You are tired And you want to be free My love is growing stronger As you become a habit to me I've been loving you. Oh, too long. And I don't want to stop now. Can you do that one more time, just like that? Do it just one more time, one more time. Do it just one more time. With you, my love Has been so wonderful I can't stop now You Your love is growing cold Love is growing stronger As our fear grows old Ooh, I'm loving you Oh, too long And I don't want to stop now No, no, no I've been loving you Just a little bit too long, and I don't wanna stop now, no, no, no. Don't make me stop now, No baby. I'm down on my knees, please don't make me stop now, yeah. I love. I love you with all my heart And I can't stop now Please, please, please yeah. Don't make me stop now, yeah, yeah, yeah I got life, but hold I love you I love you, good God almighty, I love you I love you, baby, I love you, honey Good God almighty, good God almighty, I love you
1: Brilliant, brilliant photography is is quite extraordinary. But then, um, direct cinema is supposed to be observational. It's supposed not to tell you what things mean. You're supposed to figure it out yourself. But there, that little clip inserted in the middle, holding the audience and the performer in the same frame for the only time. Um, This is the love crowd. We all love each other, don't we? And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the community uh, is realized. Uh, this is the love crowd. We all love each other. Following immediately, I've been loving you too long. Rather than abandoning love, uh, Otis Redding affirms its continuity. Too long to stop now. Otis is followed by Jimi Hendrix, who performs Wild Thing, introducing it as the combined English and American national anthem. The transnational, transatlantic cultural community is complete and the road to Woodstock, to uh, Utopia, is open. Woodstock, at last, focuses equally on the fans and the music. Separate camera crews were assigned to each, documenting them arriving separately, coming together. There, to the accompaniment of Richard Richard Haven's singing Freedom, a half a million young people break down the fences. Their act is not seen as delinquency, but as the liberation of the commodity relations the festival had attempted to create, liberating it into an unalienated folk communality. The creation of a free festival in which all present are reciprocal participants and, as Jane Foyer noted, reeking with nostalgia for America's mythical communal past. Many other formal and narrative elements in the film dramatize this achievement. For example, after the fence comes down, one of the promoters declares that though the event is a financial disaster, this is irrelevant. For these are people communicating with each other. It has nothing to do with money. And as night falls, David Crosby Echoing Otis brings the dual focus to its consummation, telling the freaks, you people have got to be the strongest bunch of people we ever saw. We just love you. We just love you. So it appears in the festival documented in the film. But what of the musical film itself? This exemplification of the new alienated mass art. The Woodstock Festival was conceived by a wealthy business student who on his 21st birthday received $400,000 as the first installment of an inheritance of several million. He thought the festival was an easy way to make money, have fun, and do something meaningful with his life, but mismanagement and a string of unforeseen developments defeated the money-making component of the festival. The fans' liberation of the festival allowed its ideological elevation into a true folk event produced and consumed by the same integrated community, but it also produced a 1.6 million loss for the promoters. But cinema came to the rescue, kind of, very briefly. Critical acclaim for the film allowed Warner Brothers, the distributors, to raise admission prices to a then unheard of uh, four and even five dollars, this, when tickets to the festival itself had only been $7 a day. Its first release returned one point, uh, $16.4 million, and in the next decade it earned $50 million. The three-record soundtrack album, released with a list price of 14.98, which is enormously expensive at that time, sold 2 million copies in the first year. That's another $30 million. In sum, the film made almost $100 million, while the festival ran as a loss. But 95% of this money accrued not to the festival's producers, who didn't even break even until many years later. Rather, the money went to the capitalist film studio and, in fact, saved Warners from bankruptcy. Woodstock then fully reconstructed the classical musical's three structural motifs – Narrative and spectacle still order the film, but the narrative has been spectacularized and the performance is integrated into it. Altman's dual-focus narrative is recreated not as a private romance, but as a comprehensive cultural ritual uniting musicians and audience in a redemptive community based on love. And the humanistic folk relations depicted in the film... Appear to cancel out the economic uh, values and relations associated with the film, but not completely. In fact, many people protested that paying to watch the film contradicted what had become a folk festival, the folk nature of the musical festival. And Jane Foyer herself noted that when she went to see the film, spectators picketed the theatre refusing to pay admission because they were in it. Very sensible. (laughs) Over the next years, these contradictions could no longer be kept out of rock and roll or rock and roll films, and films began to depict the failure of the music's utopian expectations that the first countercultural documentaries had uh, celebrated. Murray Murray Lerner's uh, film, Message to Love, About a documentary about the next major festival, uh, the Isle of Wight in 1970, for example, emphasized the venality of the promoters and highlighted the hostility amongst the freaks, the musicians, the promoters, and the locals that Woodstock had synthesized into a harmonious, mutually adoring communality. And Lerner claimed that he had designed the film Uh, specifically to reveal the contradiction between the message of the music and the commercialism of the music business. This other vision of the counterculture, one not of peace and love, but of decadence, exploitation and violence, had been and continued to be the dominant theme of films about the Rolling Stones, Gimme Shelter and especially Cocksucker Blues. These Stones films are the next stage in the argument, but this afternoon let's end with Woodstock's utopian moment. One of the film's highlights is the montage set to Santana's Soul Sacrifice, initially blocked out by Martin Scorsese and completed by an editor, Stan Warnow. The film begins with Carlos Santana's uh, solo, um, and uh, with um, doesn't actually our clip doesn't begin here. It comes a bit later with Mike Wadley's long take of him in the centre of a triple screen. Though the musicians are foregrounded, the montage interweaves Santana himself, the other ma- band members, individual in, in the audience, and the audience at large, into a diverse but independent collectivity. The interlaced shots of audience drumming places them as participants in the music and their dancing integrates them into the audiovisual spectacle rather than positioning them as merely observers of it. But also, in this uh, sequence I'm going to show you, notice how within the montage of the collective dual focus, the editors have inserted a small metonymic recollection of the original form of the dual focus and they've done so in the terms most crucial for rock and roll a romance between a white woman and if not a black man then certainly a brown-eyed handsome man please note uh, you'll see what I'm talking about almost immediately please note in the first close-up on the girl uh, she seems totally unresponsive uh, but then interpolated screens of Santana in Extremis bring her to an exuberant frenzy in which mirrored in close up on either side of the guitarist she physically enacts his music so we'll show this clip from uh, uh, from Woodstock <laughs> As I said, after this, things fall apart. The Stones films emphasize violence and in Gimme Shelter, the murder of a black man. And the music splits into separate black and white lines with the films reflecting the split. black exploitation and Lady Sings the Blues on the one hand and Nashville uh, on the other. Both of those films I mentioned conclude not with a utopian moment but with the destruction, the dystopian murder or death of the heroine, uh, uh, of the uh, principal figure who is now a woman uh, rather than a man. But Woodstock preserves a moment where social, musical and filmic utopia all coincide, a monument to cinema's dance with popular music. Thank you. Thanks very much. So that was the end of the uh, formal talk but we do have uh, some extra film and music for you. Uh, Kate and I felt that it would be a good idea to end by showing you a clip from a work that we couldn't get for the screening series itself we couldn't get the rights so we can't uh, Kate couldn't screen it but which is one of the greatest of the rock and roll films I mentioned it very briefly The Tammy Show made in 1964 by Steve Binder who four years later also saved Elvis's career and reputation with a comeback special. Steve Binder is a remarkable filmmaker who has not received anything like the recognition he deserves, and Tammy is a remarkable film in many ways. As I mentioned, it resembles the jukebox musicals uh, based on Freed's uh, theater shows, and it too had vestiges of the new form of the dual focus, the social form introduced in Hard Day's Night but its uh, importance as a film depends upon its real-time photography and editing of performances by some of the best of the British invasion bands with their black and white, uh, uh, black US models. Binder, for several years before making this film, had produced daily episodes of The Steve Allen Show, and by this time he was a uniquely experienced uh, and skilled in filming musical performance. For Tammy, he used the same crew that he used on the TV show with Steve Allen with four large, cumbersome RCA studio cameras, three of them on mobile pedestals, two of them on the sides, used mostly for close-up, and one from the rear of the stage facing into the audience. All, all were controlled by their operators, whom Binder could direct um, over a um, microphone to zoom, pan, and move fluidly around the set, providing him at every moment with a choice of four shots from extreme close-up to the wide uh, angles of the ensemble dancing. And as the performance continued, he was in a makeshift control room and spontaneously and in real time, he edited these video feeds into a single track onto high-resolution video that was later transformed to 35mm film for theatrical release. Binder's sophistication In live performance, filming was unprecedented. His responsiveness to song structure and the performer's dancing is so dexterously coordinated that while working live, he was able to cut on action and beat as precisely as John Jimson had done with Gilbert Taylor's footage for A Hard Day's Night. His remarkable abilities are perhaps most impressive in the James Brown set. Though Brown had been the sole artist, the only artist who had refused to rehearse, Binder was still able to anticipate uh, Brown's movement across the stage among his backup dancers, and at rhythmically crucial points, he was able to cut between wide shot of uh, James Brown dancing and close-ups on his face. As I said, all this spontaneously in real time without a rehearsal. So then Binder played the performers and played the entire televisual apparatus as if it were a musical uh, instrument so as to represent the excitement of the performance and the audience performer interaction so as you watch this final clip it is kind of long we're going to show the whole clip Uh, please try to notice both performances James Brown's performance which he claimed as one of his best performances ever and has been used as a model for countless uh, uh, singers from to Michael Jackson Janelle Monáe and everyone else but also notice the other performance Steve Binder's manipulation of multiple forms of rock and roll uh, visuality only when we can see the both performers together can we fully, sh- fully appreciate this uh, superlative instance of cinema's dance with rock and roll.
5: Probably the wildest guy in the business today. Wait a second, wait a second. He's brought
3: down houses from coast to coast. Cool it a second, would you? And border to border like right, flames. The flames are right here tonight. Yeah, right
5: here. James Brown and his famous flames.
2: i gonna be
0: Round of applause to David E. James for being here.